Welcome to today's Boss to Boss podcast. In our interviews, we feature remarkable people doing imaginative things in often unimaginative markets, usually from the world of B2B. Justin Welsh is a leading authority on SaaS sales. Having developed over $50 million of recurring revenue for two separate startups, Justin knows a thing or two about building high-performance sales teams. He's also developed an army of followers on LinkedIn as he provides daily insight for entrepreneurs aspiring to emulate his achievements. So given that on Boss to Boss, we care about nothing more than achieving high growth within B2B, we're extremely excited to have Justin with us today. In our interview, we'll be talking about which function should be in the driving seat, sales or marketing, what sales can learn from marketing, and how to hire and develop world-class sales teams. We'll also be getting Justin's thoughts on how ambitious professionals can make the most of LinkedIn, a channel that for the last couple of years he has totally dominated. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Now, one of the things that really strikes me about you is that despite being a sales guy, or at least that was my initial impression, you might you might challenge that description, I don't know, um, it strikes me that you've got a remarkable marketing mind. So I just wanted to start off in a fairly kind of broad place, fairly open place, if that's okay, and get your thoughts on really who should be in the, the driving seat. Should Should sales be leading marketing should marketing be leading sales is that something that's changed in recent years does it depend on the organization because certainly from my experience it can often be either a slight area of conflict or there can be a slight misalignment between the two and bad things can happen so it'd be great just to get your perspective on that yeah well first of all thanks for the nice compliment um i think from a marketing perspective it's something that's interesting to me so like i spend a lot of time reading about it and studying it but by no means am I, you know, an expert marketer, right? Like if you sit me down next to someone who runs demand gen or is a chief marketing officer, they're going to, you know, be so much deeper into the game than, than I am. With that being said, I don't know that there's necessarily a right answer because I think if there was a right answer, everyone would be doing it the same way. But I do think that for me, it's really about co-leadership. And I believe that in terms of revenue, I think obviously sales has its own responsibility on the revenue side of the business to make sure that what marketing brings in is closed at a very high level. And marketing has responsibility to bring in a number of qualified leads and opportunities for the sales team. I think the best teams work together to co-own that number. When I was at Patient Pop building revenue, I had a marketing peer named Jared Jost. Jared didn't own no lead number. It was part of something that he was responsible for, but it wasn't his ultimate ownership. Jared owned revenue. And so did I. And by co-owning that, we were able to work together to poke holes in each other's strategy, right? I'd poke holes in his, he would poke holes in mine. We would figure out the best thing to do together. And I think when you get rid of your ego as an executive leader and you recognize that the, the marketing peer or the sales peer sitting across from you is likely there for a reason, it becomes a team game. And so I think there are obviously lots of granular things you can take out of there, what positions report to who, who's responsible for exactly what. But from an overarching level, I think that sales and marketing together should own revenue. Absolutely. So what from your experience, I mean, I, I certainly am of the opinion as someone from more of a marketing background myself, that there's no shortage of things that marketing can learn from sales. And in fact, I'd go as far as to say that probably every marketer should begin with a a bit of experience in sales, but but from your perspective, the other way around, what are some of the things that maybe sales can learn from marketing? Yeah, I think the the first thing they can learn is really nuanced messaging. Like for instance, salespeople are talking to prospects once they've committed to learning more about your product or service. 
Whereas marketing is creating messaging oftentimes for people who are completely unaware of your product or service, sometimes unaware of the problem that your product or service exists to solve. And so as a salesperson, especially if you're someone doing prospecting, I think understanding that message and how you can get folks who are unaware or unwilling or unlikely or not in the right position to come in and actually um, you know, learn more about your product, how you can create messaging that moves people further down the funnel. I think that's really, really critical as a salesperson, especially as a prospector. I think you can learn about that from marketing. I think the other thing that you can do when you're chatting with your marketing team is to understand what are the things that are resonating with prospects as they enter the funnel. Because those things need to sound like one continuous conversation. When you're a prospect, from the moment you discover a brand online, to the minute you begin interacting with their content, to the moment you find yourself in a sales funnel, to getting onboarded, to renewing, I call that having one continuous conversation. You might chat, you might interact with an advertisement, you might chat with a salesperson, you might chat with onboarding, customer success. It should feel like you're talking to one person. And you can't do that if each department is siloed and doesn't understand the messaging and the nuance of every other department. So I think that just holistically is something that, that sales and marketing can learn from one another. But I think that applies across customer service, product, and every other team in your company. Awesome. Looking at it from a um, slightly different perspective, what's irritated you most about marketing over the years? There must have been occasions. I mean, as I say, the fact I think you were able to very clearly see it from both perspectives, bring it all together, must be a hell of an asset. But equally, there must have been occasions where from a, a sales perspective, you've kind of looked at it and said, come on, guys, you know, you're really dropping the ball here. Yeah, just like there are high-performing, middle-performing, and bottom-performing sales teams, salespeople, and sales leaders, you run the same sort of gamut on the marketing side, right? And so I think what can be irritating is when a marketer doesn't want to co-own revenue or when they want to own a lead number. Like, you know, no offense, but like I can get you leads, right? Like give me an Excel document full of email addresses. I'll send a bunch of emails and get you a bunch of leads. But leads are meaningless unless there is some intent to buy or some problem that your product can solve, right? Some objective criteria that makes them worth talking to. So I think the thing that's been just most irritating is when you have a marketer who, you know, wants to own a lead number, doesn't want to participate in co-ownership. And I think those people usually sort of get figured out kind of early and, and end up maybe not making it as, as long or as deep as some of the marketers. So presumably the most important role of any sales lead is, is hiring and nurturing the right team. After all, I guess everything from that point onwards is really a consequence of those people. So is it more important that candidates have a deep understanding of the market they're selling into? Or is there some other variable that should be considered, uh, such as their familiarity with the average deal size, for example, or perhaps the sales cycle? What's your perspective on that? I think it depends, but I can kind of break it into how I think about it. So my background in competency is in transactional SaaS. So all the teams I've built over the last 12 years have always been transactional. Sales prices of, you know, average contract values of less than 15K, sales cycles of 30 days or less, usually even closer to two weeks, so relatively quick, right? So for me, I've never really felt the need to hire healthcare experience. Like all the teams I built were healthcare, but I never really cared if you came from a healthcare background. What I did care about is that you could manage and not be caught off guard by the velocity of transactional SaaS. 
like transactional SaaS is like, go, go, go. It's like a forward assembly line, right? Like, you know, it requires you to be fast and to be moving your opportunities through the pipeline very quickly. I think, um, because of that, I hired people who had come from similar backgrounds, ACV wise, similar backgrounds, price point wise, you know, similar background sales cycle wise and stakeholder wise, talking to one stakeholder is generally, you know, the teams that I've built. Now, if you flip that around and you're hiring someone uh, to sell a product that has deep machine learning, it's an enterprise sale, you're selling to the fortune 100. I mean, to me, that's going to require you know, deep, deep knowledge of the specific industry. It's going to require, you know, being an expert in certain areas, managing C-suite executives. There's going to be so many different things that go into hiring that person. But for me, it's all about swim lanes. And my swim lanes are average contract value, sales cycle, and stakeholder availability. Are there some personality types that are more attracted to one of those than the other? Because I'm just imagining for a moment on the sort of more complex long-term, you know, three, six, nine-month sales cycle for maybe like huge, huge projects. You might argue that the relationship side is really important and somebody who is kind of looking to really, really nurture those, cultivate those relationships over time. On the other hand, as you say, someone who's able to deal with that really kind of high-velocity environment, is there a slightly different kind of personality that just naturally, instinctively is drawn to one of those than the other and sort of succeeds in one of those rather than the other? Definitely. I mean, I'm going to paint with a broad brush. And I think anytime you do that, you generally get some things wrong, right? It's not like everyone who sells enterprise and SMB are exactly the same. But generally, here's what I've seen. I've seen in my lifetime uh, in SaaS, the folks who are really good at complex enterprise deals generally tend to be academic. They tend to be great listeners. They're great at managing a very complex deal cycle with multiple stakeholders. They're patient. They're like project managers. Like that's what I think of when I think of really great enterprise salespeople are managing this big project and they've got to make sure that it comes to be completed. SMB or transactional salespeople, again, painting with a broad brush, a little more aggressive uh, former quick sport athletes. So a lot of, you know, football playing, field hockey, soccer, basketball. I see a lot of like really aggressive sort of folks there. Um, really social. Uh, a lot of people who are, are really good are just very social, very talkative, very quick to move things through. And they also have very, very thick skin as most salespeople do. Transactional SaaS, you're hearing no all the time. You're hearing no every single day, not just from prospecting, but also from your deals. And so you got to have a thick skin. It's kind of like that quarterback in, in American football where it's like you throw an interception, you got to have a short memory, right? Like you got to run back out there and, and you throw a touchdown. And so that's basically, you know, some differences that I've seen in, in sort of those complex sellers and the SMB transactional sellers. I love that. That's a really interesting distinction. So slightly different kind of question. So I know you've got a lot of experience in field sales. I just wonder, and you're probably sick of answering questions relating to the pandemic now, but I just wonder how the pandemic may have affected the importance of, of getting in front of people in the sales process. Do, do you subscribe to what seems to be an increasingly popular notion that everything that was once done offline can now be done over Zoom? Or do you think that actually, you know, some things never really change? Um, I think a lot of things that can be done in person can be done over Zoom. I don't know that everything can, uh, probably. But I would say that just because something can be done doesn't mean that there aren't things that you miss when you take away the in-person visit, right? I think having been very early, I was a sub-10 employee at two really successful startup companies. I loved in the early days, really chatting with my customer, 
like really being in their office, like getting a tour, understanding how their business works, shaking hands, going out for a beer, like getting some of the professional mask off and getting the personal mask on. I think a lot of those things are really, really beneficial. You cannot recreate some of those things over Zoom, at least not as effectively as you could in person. But that being said, like, are there benefits to inside sales? Of course, right? Efficiency, reach, you know, cost, like, oh, there's a million benefits. Um, but I'll be sad if field selling, even though it's relatively antiquated, I'll be sad if it goes away completely. I think there's a lot to be learned from being close to your customer. And in a sense, is there an argument to say, well, you know, the fact that maybe it's become something of a peripheral activity for obvious reasons over the last couple of years, is there an argument to say that for that very reason, there's maybe more of an opportunity there because it's often, you know, at the periphery where the unexpected and more impactful events can take place. The very fact that actually there's a certain novelty now, you know, should you get invited to a real world interaction or should somebody knock on your door? There's a little bit of the unexpected there. So is there maybe an argument to say that paradoxically, for all the reasons that it's become less popular, you know, maybe it could be more impactful than ever over the next couple of years? I think so. I think, um, you know, pre-pandemic at Patient Pop, we're an average contract value of $13,500, sales cycle of less than 10 days. That is ripe for inside sales. And we had a nice big inside sales team. We also had a field sales team that did 20 to 30 million in bookings every year. And that field sales team, I like to think, and maybe I'm wrong, but was a competitive differentiator. If you look at our competitors, doctor.com, better doctor, I mean, we grew faster and to a higher revenue number than all of those companies. And we did it selling a relative in a similar space, selling a similar feature set. And we did it because we went out and we bombarded our market. And um, our field salespeople were really, really good. Talk about paying someone between you know, 175 and 200K and bringing us 1.4 to 1.5 million in net new bookings a, or gross new bookings a, a year. And, and that to me was, was awesome. And we learned a heck of a lot about our customers. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a, a huge opportunity to, to continue to do that, especially as some of the restrictions uh, let up. That's amazing. So moving on to LinkedIn for a moment, so a little bit, a little bit different, but um, certainly I think it was how I first encountered you. And um, I know you've, you've developed a hell of a profile there. And I think what's interesting is in one sense, you're very, very niche, very specific in what you do. And I love that. And it's such a kind of compelling proposition. It must be for people who satisfy that criteria. But actually, you've developed a, quite a broad audience as well in the business community. So I'd just love to understand or get your thoughts on some of the things that you think you've done that have enabled you to kind of develop that, that audience and, and how impactful that's proving to be for your business, given that actually your proposition is quite specific. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll start with things I think I've done well. I think number one, I think I got lucky. I think anyone who's who started writing or producing content on LinkedIn in 2018, which I did, you know, there's some luck to that, right? I just chose LinkedIn because that's just what I chose. Like I just got, I just chose it. <laughs> that was it. And like got lucky and, um, you know, started creating content when there were no content creators on the platform. And now there's a lot more. And so I think getting early was a win for me. I think teaching myself to write copy was something that I took a lot of pride in. 
I read a lot of copywriting books. I took a lot of copywriting courses. I read a lot of material on marketing. I'm huge on distribution. Like I'm just like a hobby of mine. I like to do those kinds of things. And so I think, um, you know, starting early, staying really consistent. So I write every single day. I hardly ever take off. I hardly ever miss, I take off the weekends, but I hardly ever miss a weekday. You know, learning to write copy has been really helpful. And then just understanding human psychology. I'm a huge fan of like reading how people make decisions, which I think you have to be already if you're going to be in sales. So there's a lot of sort of crossover from my sales world. But I think those are some of the things that enabled me to be successful. I just care about it. I like it. And so I spend a lot of time learning about it. I think what it's done for me is increased sort of my luck surface area, where it's like, if you've got 125,000 or whatever followers and your content gets read by 50 million people in one year, you just increase the surface area where you're exposed to luck, you know, more, more projects, more opportunities, more people, more podcasts like this one, speaking events, customers. And so I just want to be out there. I think attention is the new currency. You know, I think that you can create your own attention online. And by doing so, you're just available to so many different opportunities. I've ended up in multiple Discord channels. I've, all, I've ended up in multiple Slack channels. I've become an LP at a rolling fund through LinkedIn. I've landed a million dollars in consulting business. I've built a community of 425 people, sold 4,500 courses. There's just like a million different opportunities that come to you when people see your face every day. And so I feel like LinkedIn is an opportunity to speak on stage to a stadium filled with people every single morning. And I just think if people aren't taking advantage of that, they're missing out. Has it shifted your perspective at all? Because obviously, historically, um, and I get the sense that you've always had a, a strong marketing brain anyway, but, but historically, you've obviously developed um, your career within very high velocity B2B sales environment, where presumably you've kind of had to be fairly short-term focused, right? Like there isn't a long-term strategy without a fairly profitable short-term, right? So you've had to be presumably, correct me if I'm wrong, fairly kind of short-term orientated. And now what you've described there is over the last two or three years, what you're talking about there is you've developed the most wonderful brand and now you're benefiting from all of the benefits of that that are so hard to predict and so hard to measure for and so hard to attribute to this activity or that activity, but you're obviously now seeing all the benefits of that. Have you always had that kind of mindset or has your experience with LinkedIn and, and now all the other activities that you're engaged in off the back of that, has that kind of evolved your thinking a little bit? And consequently, if you were like developing a sales team now and you were training these people, would your advice to them be a little bit different today? I'll give you a quick example. I mean, I, I interviewed Joe Paluzzi a few months ago and he gave me some really interesting stats about the, the time it takes for a content marketing strategy to reach monetization stage. And um, over like 15 years, obviously Joe being like the godfather of content marketing, he said the average time was 18 months and uh, the fastest he'd ever seen was nine months. And obviously within any B2B sales environment, that's a pretty tough sell, right? Like that's a long time to expect people to wait, um, which is the reason why 98% of content strategies, whether it's on behalf of an individual or a brand, die because they hit three, four, five, you know, month six and, and they just don't have that business case. I just wonder how your perspective has may have shifted as a consequence of this experience. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because as a sales leader, right? So I was, you know, running the sales uh, organization at Patient Pop. While we had a short-term deal flow or deal cycle, which was, you know, very transactional, 
I mean, strategically, I had to think long-term, right? I had to think about headcount. I had to think about the product uh, evolution. I had to think about our go-to-market strategy over time, how we were going to grow our bookings, uh, new distribution channels. All of those things require long-term thinking. At the same time, you have to balance out short-term accomplishments, right? And I think that that is a really unique balance as a sales leader, especially one who is transactional in nature. So going into creating content on LinkedIn, like I think one of the best things that I did was not have an expectation. So it was a little bit different. I just, I just didn't know what to expect. I initially looked at it as an outlet for creativity, as a potential opportunity to get a few eyeballs, to grow some thought leadership, to build my brand, all of those things. And so as it started to work, and it worked, it took about nine months. So that, that sounds about right. I really started thinking about the aggregate total of doing this for a much longer period of time. So like, yes, Dan, tomorrow I can go on LinkedIn and write a post and say, people should buy my course and here's a coupon and I'll make sales and it'll be a good sales day. Long-term, that's not a great strategy. <laughs> so like, I need to think about what is my content strategy? What is my brand strategy? Who am I going to be? Where am I going to be active? How will distribution work? I mean, I need to think, think about what that's going to look like in 2025, 2031. And so I'm thinking about what my brand looks like 10 years from now all the time while simultaneously like stepping up to the plate and hitting singles every day, trying to get on base, trying to get seen, trying to get some attention. So it's, it's not too dissimilar from, you know, my previous role where it's like long-term vision, a lot of short-term execution, and then the aggregate total of those short-term executions being something really valuable in the long-term, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It makes so much sense. It's just um, quite rare, uh, I would say, to find somebody who can really bring together sales and marketing in quite that way. And I, I love the um, sporting analogies. I think they, they help paint a picture for sure. Well, look, thank you so much for this, Justin. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, hugely insightful. I knew it would be. Um, but yeah, just thank you so much for your time. Of course, really enjoyed it. Thanks for spending some time with me and having me on the show. Always appreciate it.